thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery, advances, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. Hello and welcome to the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine with me, Sally LePage. We're looking back on the year that's just been and what a year 2021 was. Once again, COVID dominated the headlines and alongside the climate crisis and seemingly endless extreme weather events, it feels like we've been bombarded with negative news stories all year long. But fear not, for the next hour I'm going to be sharing only the good news stories that we've covered here on The Naked Scientists, such as how we may have solved the perennial train delays caused by leaves on the line, and even how we cracked the ultimate mystery, how wombats make their poos cube-shaped. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. We're going to start with what is arguably the best news story of 2021, and that is we have made huge strides towards wiping out malaria. It's estimated that malaria kills 400,000 people every single year. And what's most devastating about this disease is that two thirds of those deaths are in children under the age of five. But with new research, we are turning the tide. In June, the World Health Organization declared China, a country that had 30 million cases in the 1940s, as completely malaria-free. One of the malaria vaccines that has been in development for decades, the Moscurex vaccine, was finally approved to be rolled out across Africa, making it the first ever malaria vaccine available outside of clinical trials. This Moscarix vaccine is only about 30% effective, well below the WHO target of 75%. But in even better news, scientists from the University of Oxford have produced another malaria vaccine that's about 77% effective. They completed their phase two trials in West Africa in May and Chris Smith spoke with immunologist Katie Ewer, who worked on the vaccine, and later Ashish Jha, Dean of Brown University School of Public Health. It's a great achievement. We've been working towards this for quite a long time now. So to finally have this result after so long and so many different vaccines that we've tested in clinical trials, it's great. How does the vaccine work? So the vaccine primes your immune system to make antibodies against one of the main proteins on the surface of the malaria parasite. So that when you get bitten by a a mosquito that's carrying malaria, those antibodies bind up those parasites and stop them from setting up infection in your body. People have been trying to do this for a long time, though, haven't they? We've seen many, many trials of malaria vaccines. They, They don't seem to have been very successful. So why have you managed to triumph where they haven't? 
Malaria is a really complicated infection to make a vaccine against. It has a, a life cycle in both the human and the mosquito host. And so depending on which part of the life cycle you want to target, you might need a different type of immune response. So when you make a vaccine against a, a simple virus, you've only got sort of seven genes to choose from. Malaria has around 5,000. So just deciding which part of the parasite you want to use as a target for your vaccine is a huge job. The part of the life cycle that we target with our vaccine takes place just after you get bitten by that mosquito that's carrying the malaria parasite. And we're trying to capture that window with an immune response between those parasites going into your skin and getting to your liver. And that window is only about half an hour to two hours. So it's not long for the vaccine to act to block that infection. Ashish, from a, a public health point of view, this must be music to your ears because malaria is one of the leading causes of death worldwide, isn't it? Oh, this is extraordinary. And we're all going to hope that more data come in supporting this. I think over the years, I have always said that if we got a vaccine that was 30, 40% effective, we would be thrilled. It would make an enormous difference. So a potential vaccine of 75%. And, and most of the people who die of malaria are children. And so it's particularly an awful disease. And while we've made progress globally, uh, it still uh, kills hundreds of thousands of people around every year. So this is extraordinary. I, I'm trying not to get overly enthusiastic because we want to see bigger trial data, but everything I've seen so far makes me very, very hopeful. Taking that point forward, Katie, because so many victims are children, when is the best time to intervene? Do you intervene in pregnancy so that young newborns don't catch it? Because that's a big issue with malaria, isn't it? When you get a newborn or a young kitty who catches it and then they, they don't fight it off as, as effectively as an adult and they often become victims. Yeah, that's right. Uh, as we just heard, most children who die of malaria are under the age of five in sub-Saharan Africa. So the plan really, because malaria is predominantly a seasonal infection, is to give those children immunity before the start of the malaria season. So they have lots of antibodies ready for when those parasites and, and, and mosquitoes start biting. So we're looking at vaccinating children in their first year of life before the malaria season starts and then giving them booster doses every year to top up those antibody levels before they're exposed to it during the malaria season going forward. Is this a, a, the sort of vaccine that's pretty stable? Because obviously it's easy to make a vaccine which when you have a perfect environment such as a laboratory, you can keep fresh. But when you take it out into the back of beyond where there is no electricity supply, there is no fridge, it's a different story. What, what's the vaccine construct, as it were? Yeah, that's a really important point. And people who work on malaria vaccines know that there's no point making a very expensive vaccine that you have to store in a freezer. It's got to be cheap. It's got to be able to you know, survive a very rural cold chain. And we've got to be able to make hundreds of millions of doses of it. So this is a protein and adjuvant type vaccine, not new technology. It's administered in three doses, as I mentioned. So we really do think that this is feasible to deploy on the scale that's going to be required to really have an impact next step will presumably be a much bigger trial to then prove it works, it's safe and, and really how effective it can be. Exactly. So the data so far is from a phase two trial, which was in 450 children in West Africa. We now have approval to start a phase three trial, and that will be in four countries in both East and West Africa. So different levels of malaria transmission intensity, and that will be in 4,800 children. So much bigger sample size to really, really check for safety and protection in different communities, different populations. I told you it was good news. That was Katie Ewer speaking with Chris Smith. 
For our next good news story from 2021, we're switching from saving lives to the origins of life on our planet. When Earth scientist Benjamin Hess was a student at Wheaton University in Illinois, he had no idea that a local storm would change the course of his career and produce a remarkable piece of geology that has shed light, or rather lightning, on how life may have got started here. In a study published in May, he showed how bolts of lightning may have endowed the early Earth with one of the most crucial building blocks of life, the element phosphorus as Phil Sansom found out. Basically, lightning struck somebody's um, back garden, their property nearby. They called up the Department of Geology at Wheaton College and were like, hey, there's this thing in our backyard. Do you want to come check it out? And some professors showed up and realized it was a lightning strike. And when you say it, what exactly was it? It was a lightning strike glass called a fulgurite. So when lightning hits the ground, it heats it to thousands of degrees Celsius and melts it immediately. And then it reforms. So it was like this tree trunk-like structure under the ground with branches coming off the bottom. And the size of a tree trunk too. Yeah, yeah. So the total mass that was collected was about 25 kilograms of material. So like a fair-sized tree trunk under the ground, basically. Is that kind of geologist Christmas? Yeah, I mean, it's rare to find something so interesting in the flat plains of the Midwest. Let me tell you that. <laughs> um, and I just started prodding at it, basically, with whatever analytical techniques I had access to at Wheaton College. And there were a few little small spheres of something that I didn't know what they were. Using the scanning electron microscope, which essentially tells you the elemental composition and the structures of the things you're looking at. That actually let us finally figure out what these metal spherules were. And it turns out that they were an iron phosphide. And phosphide is a reduced form of phosphorus, meaning it's no longer bonded to oxygen, which is really weird because we live in a very oxygenated atmosphere. So it's hard to make that happen. Iron phosphide, so a rare mineral. Yeah, something that you really would not see. I've never seen a phosphide before in any rock. When I first found it, I was kind of like, huh, that's strange. But when I started reading the literature on like what this mineral is, it's a mineral called Schreibersite. The most well-known locality where it shows up is in meteorites because there's less oxygen out in space when meteorites are forming. And it turns out Schreibersite is thought to be one of the most widespread sources for phosphorus for life on early Earth, for the formation of life. Wow. This is a big jump. Yeah, no, that's what I thought, too. They're like, this is crazy. What's this meteorite mineral doing (laughs) in this lightning strike glass and, you know, meteorites and origins of life? It's like, hold on, this could actually be a really big story. I mean, how so? Where where is phosphorus important to the picture? and, And why is it such a big deal to try and get a hold of it? Phosphorus is one of the essential elements for life. It forms a lot of structural and functional elements in cells, like it makes up the backbone of DNA and RNA, the double helix structure. The problem is it's trapped in minerals that are common, but insoluble and unreactive. So you basically can't use the phosphorus. So the question is, where do you get phosphorus that's free to react and make molecules needed for life? And it's this mineral. Yeah, that's one of the best solutions scientists have come up with. They found this phosphide mineral, Schreibersite, because it readily reacts with water to free up phosphorus. But we saw this in a lightning strike, and we thought, wait a minute, maybe 
lightning could also be a source. As opposed to meteors, you mean? Not as opposed, but in addition. How do you actually figure out then whether this is a likely thing to have happened billions of years ago? That is really the big question that took up the bulk of the time writing this study, trying to come up with a convincing estimate. The three big things are you need to know how many lightning strikes are happening. You need to know how much phosphorus was in the rocks that they were striking. And you need to know how much phosphorus each lightning strike turns into schreibersite or something similar that can be available for prebiotic chemistry. Based on our calculations, we think that lightning was providing about as much phosphorus as meteorites. Doesn't it kind of remind you of a Frankenstein sort of situation? I mean, the, the popular idea of creating life involves a lightning strike. And it's crazy to imagine that this was partly what actually happened for us to come along. Yeah, absolutely. And the cool thing about this mechanism is it can operate on other planets as well. After the solar system forms, meteorites kind of get cleared out by planets. So there's kind of a cutoff window for when they can provide enough phosphorus for life. But if you have a stable atmosphere, lightning is a mechanism that can operate indefinitely. Some pretty striking results there. That was Benjamin Hess speaking with Phil Sansom. From baffling British weather... The sideways spines of the vertebrae coming off here. ...to looking at a cheetah from the inside out... Games making their way to the clinic and what to eat in your garden. Mm. The Naked Scientists In Short podcasts bring you a top-up of short, compelling science stories. Listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com short or subscribe to Naked Specials wherever you get your podcasts. We're covering the best news stories from 2021. And still to come, how bum-breathing turtles may have cracked our ventilator problem. And we read between the lines to see the parts of Marie Antoinette's love letters that had previously been redacted. We've just heard about the origins of all life on Earth being helped along by lightning. But in 2021, we also looked at the beginning of life for a very special group of animals, sharks, and asked... Where do baby sharks come from? I mean, the obvious answer is when a mummy shark and a daddy shark love each other very much. But after that step, these fish have three main ways to make baby sharks. One is by laying eggs. Another is by giving birth to live young. But some species like grey nurse or sand tiger sharks use a mixture of the two. And it can get brutal. Baby sharks eat each other inside of their mother. You heard that right cannibalism before they're even born. To dive deeper into how sharks reproduce, Charlotte Bergmanis spoke with Deborah Foote back in July. With everything going on, life is hectic at the moment. So how about a beach walk? Walking along the beach, you kick something with your toe. After the initial surprise wears off and you stop the dog from trying to eat it, you see a tough, dark brown spiral, about 8 centimetres wide and 15 centimetres long. You dust the sand off it, stop the dog from trying to eat it again and realise it's an egg case from a bullhead shark. And although they look quite different from the traditional idea of an egg, these empty egg cases occasionally wash up all over the world. This gets you starting to think about sharks. And of course, a certain tune comes to mind. There is so much more to these creatures of the deep than just their teeth. 
and we have so much more to learn about them. But let's start from the beginning. Where do baby sharks come from? Egg laying is used by a small number of shark species. These eggs are often palm-sized and come in a variety of colours, shapes and textures depending on the species of the shark. We often call these mermaid purses. Some shark species carry their young in a similar way to us, with the baby in a womb attached to its mother with a placenta. But other shark species do something in between. They produce eggs but don't lay them. The eggs develop inside the mother and are nourished by an egg yolk until they're ready to hatch and then they're born live. Let's find out about one species that has one of the most fascinating starts to life. Though I might be a bit biased because I'm a shark scientist. For them, life starts with a cannibalistic pre-birth blood battle. It's a shark-eat-shark world out there. In Australia, we call them grey nurse sharks, but they're also known as spotted ragged tooth sharks or sand tiger sharks in other places in the world. That's Deborah Foote from the University of Queensland. The pups will hunt and consume their brothers and sisters while in utero. Now that is some intense family rivalry going on right there. But there's also some competition going on at the genetic level as well. The mother will mate with multiple partners. The pups could have different dads. Only one pup ends up being born from each uterus. Yes, you heard that right. Grey nurse sharks have more than one uterus. They have two because they have eaten the other brothers and sisters. So by the end of it, they've essentially had one father for their offspring. The first pup that hatches, so the biggest one, is the most likely to be the surviving pup because it can eat its smaller brothers and sisters, which are usually the ones that are from other dads. But the food supply doesn't end there. After they have finished snacking on their siblings, their mother keeps the canapes coming by supplying a virtual conveyor belt of unfertilised eggs to nourish her offspring. This gives them quite the advantage when they're out in the world and have to start fending for themselves. They're born quite large, so at about a metre total length, which is quite big if you're wanting to avoid being eaten by bigger fish. They've had practice already feeding themselves by eating eggs and other embryos in the womb. They can also swim in the womb and even go from one uterus to the other. This may help them access those little hard-to-reach eggs and embryos. One of the reasons that this mode of embryonic nourishment has developed, so being able to feed itself inside, practice swimming inside, is that then they're at a competitive advantage when they get to the outside world because they already know how to feed themselves. They're already well-practiced at swimming and because they're quite big, they're less likely to be eaten by other predators. Although somewhat scary-looking, grey-nosed sharks are not aggressive, but the pups, they sure are feisty. The researcher that discovered that grey-nosed eat eggs while in the womb to um, nourish themselves had cut open a dead pregnant female shark and was reaching inside to have a look inside her female reproductive organs felt like he had had a bite on his finger it wasn't enough to puncture the skin and of course then when he opened up further and had a look at the pups he realized that they had quite well advanced dentition so a lot of baby sharks before they're born have a sheath over their teeth but that is not the case in gray nurse they have nice sharp teeth for eating those eggs and the other embryos as required during gestation and this pregnancy can go on from 9 to 12 months 
that's a long time for the mum to be carrying around pups squirming around and eating each other inside her. So next time you see a shark gliding around or watch one on TV, think of the investment that the mother has gone into to get it this far. People worry about getting bitten by sharks, but to be bitten by the unborn fetuses inside a dead female shark's womb and sharks cannibalizing and eating their siblings before they're even born. That was the craziest fact I learned all year. Thank you to Deborah Foot there. Back in February, we uncovered a new clue to a planet-sized problem. Australian scientists dug up evidence connecting multiple massive shakeups to the prehistoric world, the extinction of the Neanderthals, the appearance of cave art, massive swings in global temperature and climate change, all to a weakening of the planet's magnetic field nearly 42,000 years ago. And this new evidence came from some trees. Adam Murphy reports. Earth has a magnetic field and it does more than just point your compass one way or the other. It keeps the planet safe from the sun. Without it, particles beaming in from the sun would just strip off the ozone and leave the planet vulnerable to massive doses of UV radiation. But it's not static. It changes, it weakens and occasionally it flips altogether. And one such weakening happened about 42,000 years ago. And when it happened, a lot of other big things were happening as well. Massive growth of the ice sheets over North America, shifting tropical rain belts, uh, shifting winds over the Southern Ocean, the extinction of megafauna in Australia, and more arid conditions, the demise of the Neanderthals, all happening effectively at the same time and precisely coincident just when the poles were switching. That's Chris Turney from the University of New South Wales, who's been studying this changing in the magnetic field, which is called the Le Champs event. One issue when you're looking back that far, though, is pinning down exactly when something happened. Did the magnetic field change before or after these other things? And this new research has been pinning a much more accurate date using New Zealand's plant life. There are these beautiful big trees, several metres across, they can live up to two millennia, they're called kauri, but they've been there for millions of years. And uh, effectively, these trees have died and fallen into peat bogs and wetlands, and then being beautifully preserved. As a result of which, these trees provide a year-by-year record of the climate through the patterns of the growth rings, but they also photosynthesize the carbon from the atmosphere and preserve that and lay that down as wood. And that gives us a measure of the radioactive levels of carbon formed in the upper atmosphere. And during the Le Champ, during the switch from north to south and south to north over several hundred years, the magnetic field effectively collapsed almost to nothing less than 6% of what it is today. And the practical upshot of which was the the shield protecting the Earth from all these high-energy cosmic rays formed from supernova basically just was flung wide open. And as a result, what you see in the trees year by year is this huge spike in radioactive carbon, which is laid down in the trees. You find this big spike. So it's really distinctive. Because this happened 42,000 years ago, and with a love for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the team have named all this, the magnetic field changes in the events that followed, the Adams event, after author Douglas Adams. But what would it have been like to live through? Aurora through the skies, you lightning bolts, people were hiding out in caves. Uh, in fact, we see an explosion of rock art at that time, which implies people were actually hiding away because there had been increased UV and 
terrible climate changes. I mean, it must have seemed like the end of days. It must have been an extraordinary time to live for. And, and it would have gone on for decades. During this Lachamp period, the sun's activity dropped a lot as well. And it's almost like the perfect storm. You've got a weaker magnetic field. Everything's like the worst case scenario possible. It's amazing to think that all of that can be figured out just from some fossil trees. That was Chris Turney from the University of New South Wales. Speaking of carbon and the atmosphere, in August I paid a visit to the Great Fen in Cambridgeshire to learn more about the huge role peat bogs play in storing carbon. Sadly, modern farming on these wet soils dries the peat out, causing it to release vast quantities of carbon dioxide, obviously contributing to global warming. But like I said, in today's show, we're only focusing on the good news. And the Bedfordshire, Cambridgeshire and Northamptonshire Wildlife Trust have been researching ways in which we can use the land productively to grow food and building materials without draining and degrading the peat soil underneath. So that means we can grow our food and protect the planet at the same time. I visited an experimental farming site on the Great Fen called Waterworks to find out more from Restoration Manager Lorna Parker. The project's called the Waterworks Project and it's uh, an exciting opportunity to showcase a new form of farming. Up to two centimetres of soil are lost in, in terms of land height every year. Um, and in places that soil is already very shallow, but even in the deeper areas you might be looking at another 80 years of farming and then no more peat soil left anyway and we need to find another choice. So what would the farmers do when the peat runs out? Well, underneath the peat is a layer of really heavy clay, so it's much harder to farm. And before you get there, a lot of this peatland is actually quite acidic as well because we were at the seaside about 5,000 years ago. So there's all sorts of geology under our feet that make it very complicated to farm. So either it's 80 years of farming vegetables business as normal and then kind of farming crisis for this area. What's the alternative? That's what we're hoping to show. We're kind of trying to demonstrate a new form of farming which will look at crops that you can grow in wet soil so we can trap that carbon, lock that carbon back in but also hopefully produce food, fuel, fibre and medicines. And this is the fab word paludiculture. It's a good one, isn't it? It will be a word that most people won't have come across before. Um, Paludi is swamp, so it's swamp agriculture. So what we're going to do is go for a walk on our wet farming pilot project, the Waterworks project, and have a look at some of the new crops that we're going to grow and hopefully excite you about the possibility of the things we can do with those crops in the future. I'm already very excited. The cows are already very excited. Let's go. Excellent. So we've walked over some uh, little raised strips. We've walked over some ditches. Where are we now? Okay, so you're in the corner of one of our new wet farming beds. This one we're sat in at the moment is what we're hoping will be a future food crop for the fens, um, which is manna grass. It's a cereal crop, um, which would need some crop development, but could be a porridge or a sort of flower. So I'm looking at one of these seed heads now. I mean, it's not much to look at compared to an ear of wheat, for example. <laughs> you can barely see the seeds. What will the seeds look like? They'd be small, like a kind of millet-type grain um, that you could you could have in your posh ancient grain porridge, for example, or you could mill it into possibly low-gluten flour. And you've got to ask, what does it taste like? I don't know yet, because this is our first year, so we haven't harvested any, and I think the seed is so precious at the moment, we'll probably grow more plants with it rather than eat it. So you're going to spend years of work creating this food that you don't even know tastes any good? Well, I hope so. We can add our jam to our porridge. I'm sure it'll be fine. 
When you're thinking of plants that can feed lots of people in wet soil, the automatic choice would be rice. So why aren't you growing rice here? Well, we're looking at rice. The um, climate in the UK is not ideal for rice at the moment, but, you know, with global warming, it's going in the right direction. So our plant nursery is actually looking at different strains of rice to find ones which grow in the most similar climate to what we have here. As you can probably hear, this field is a lot wetter than the other ones. Yeah, we've come to have a look at our bulrush field. And what can we use bulrushes for? Bulrush is pretty epic as well, actually. It's got a, a structure when it grows where it traps lots of air inside its stem. So it can be absolutely fantastic for fibreboard, so for construction materials that insulate at the same time. The cavity wall filling, you can shred it and blow it in in place of artificial um, products for cavity walls. It would be really exciting, I think, to grow products and then build local houses, you know, from something that's sourced only a few miles away. Yeah, totally. We are next to probably one of the biggest plots, I would say, of of the ones we've been to. And it's covered in a very familiar to any allotment grower. It's covered in a weed membrane. What is going to be here? Okay, so we've got about 150,000 plugs of this tiny bog moss that we're going to plant of several species underneath the mesh and it will grow into a sort of carpet of green under there which will be a really good crop for us to harvest and lock that carbon in the soil. Growing moss as a crop, how is that going to be useful? Oh, lots of ways. Moss, I could talk for hours just about the moss. Moss is really exciting. Um, One of the most exciting things that we're hoping to do with the moss here is grow it and harvest it as a substitute for compost for growing vegetables. Because right now there's been this big move of uh, not buying compost that's got peat in it, right? So is this what's going to be in the bags of compost instead? Well, we're hoping to go bigger than that. So we're hoping that this will be what growers of vegetables that you eat in the supermarket are going to use to grow their small lettuce plants for example rather than buying in peat from peat that's been harvested from peat bogs in the wild. Wow so not only will this moss stop people digging up the peat for the sake of the peat it will also stop the peat here from drying out and we still get vegetables. Absolutely and the moss is amazing because it can control its own environment so it, it can control its own water it can control weeds It's antibiotic, it's super absorbent, it's like a hero plant. You really are in love with this moss, aren't you? It's a bit of a worry, isn't it? (laughs) If you had a magic wand, what would you do with all of the peat bogs and former peat bogs in east of England? So most of the peat here is is farmed. Um, I would like to see ways that we can use it productively because that's a really important part of the local economy and the local culture, but in a way that can can protect it forever because if we don't do something now it will be gone for future generations and if we can do that in a sustainable way which has all these other benefits and build our houses from it then what's not to like about that i have to say meeting lorna and seeing how excited she got about something as overlooked as moss was definitely one of the highlights of my year that was lorna parker from the bedfordshire cambridgeshire and northamptonshire wildlife trust Much has changed for business owners, managers, and staff recently. But with over 30 years' experience in telecommunications, award-winning independent company Spitfire have the expertise to make sure you stay ahead and can keep on innovating. Whether it's connectivity, MPLS networks, firewalls, or phone systems, Spitfire can help. 
To find out more, go to spitfire.co.uk. That's spitfire.co.uk. Spitfire, telecoms and IP engineering solutions for business since 1988. Music in the program is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. We're looking back at some of our best good news stories from 2021. So far, we've heard about the latest breakthroughs in developing a vaccine against malaria, how it's a shark-eat-shark world even in the womb, and how we can save the climate while still growing food on peat bogs. We're now moving on to quite possibly the strangest news story we reported on in 2021. Over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic, one of the many lessons we learned was the importance of having enough ventilators and other breathing aids to save the lives of people in hypoxic respiratory failure. That's where they're not getting enough oxygen into their blood to survive. Well, a group of scientists have taken inspiration from the aquatic world of sea cucumbers, freshwater fish called loaches, and the so-called bum-breathing turtles to develop a new approach. The name bum-breathing turtles might give you some clues as to what they discovered. Termed enteral ventilation via anus, the technique uses either a steady oxygen flow or the injection of highly oxygenated liquid into the anus, with remarkable life-saving results in mice, rats and even pigs. Takanori Takabe of Tokyo Medical and Dental University and Cincinnati Children's Hospital and lead author on the study spoke to Eva Higginbotham back in May. Although it might seem strange to us, breathing through your backside has some advantages for the animals that do it. For example, the Fitzroy River turtle in Australia, sometimes affectionately called the bum-breathing turtle, can stay underwater for up to three weeks at a time thanks to this ability. And thanks to new research out of Tokyo's Medical and Dental University and Cincinnati's Children's Hospital, intestinal breathing might soon be something we humans are getting comfortable with. We started looking more carefully about the intra-anus application of oxygen, which turned out to be very effective. That's Takenori Takebe. He and his team have devised two new approaches for getting oxygen into the blood of mice, rats and pigs, and both take advantage of the fact that the mammalian rectum, that's the last bit of the large intestine before the anus, is both supplied with loads of blood vessels and has a fairly permeable membrane for gases to cross over, making it an excellent part of the body to adapt as another site to breathe from. One is very intuitive approach. We just intubate it from the anus to just to provide oxygen gas continuously. This oxygen delivery is really able to persist the survival in lethal conditions, even up to uh, 60 minutes or even longer. 60 minutes of breathing through the rectum just by pumping in oxygen. Sounds amazing, but also like it could get a bit uncomfortable. The more clinically relevant approach uses a liquid that's very good at dissolving oxygen, perfluorocarbon or PFC. This liquid is already used by doctors during some eye surgeries and sometimes as a type of synthetic blood for transfusions. So we already know that it's safe for humans. So that liquid ventilation approach is also having equivalent impacts 
on oxygenation so as to uh, really rescue the fatal hypoxic conditions in the mouse, rats and pig model system. Incredibly, Takanori showed that when just less than a pint of this PFC was injected into the anus of pigs, they would stay happily oxygenated for up to 20 minutes when in respiratory failure. And they didn't stop there. By re-injecting every 20 minutes or so, they could keep the pigs going for hours or even more. Importantly, though, when we breathe in and out using our lungs, we aren't just taking in oxygen, we're getting rid of carbon dioxide and other waste products too. Throughout the experiments, we are quite surprised to see that carbon dioxide is actually eliminated from the body. So this observation really supporting the idea that oxygen is sucked up into the circulatory system and whereas carbon dioxide is eliminated from the body as if carbon is working as a breathing or gas exchange apart us in, in our rectum regions. Takanori imagines that this new technology could be life-saving if deployed in ambulances for people being rushed to hospital unable to breathe, or in hospitals for COVID patients who require extra oxygen, or where there are limited mechanical ventilators. And he's also been approached by some other characters. Yeah, we actually had a, a discussion with the astronauts yesterday, and he is really uh, excited to apply to space applications, particularly in our emergency conditions. So there are a number of potential scenarios we can envision the application of intestinal breathing approach, not just for the medicine, but also for more broader context. So that was really exciting to me. Who knows, perhaps in the future you'll be scuba diving without a gas canister to lug around with you and instead with a more subtle breathing apparatus to keep you going. It seems if you can't supply oxygen through the lungs, the next best solution is to stick it up your bum. What a bizarre story. That was Takanori Takabe. Many of you will have been lucky enough to have someone to kiss as Big Ben chimed in the new year. But while there may have been fireworks filling the skies, sparks flying between two people pursuing a romantic connection is less of a given. What if I told you there might be a way to find out which couples are destined to click? And that's if their heart rates synchronise when they see each other. Julia Ravy reports. They look all right, actually. Definitely not. Oh, that's a cute dog. Right up my street. It's a match. When it comes to finding a potential partner, it's hard to know what to look for. A great sense of humour, intelligent conversation, a matching pulse. Well, maybe the last one is what matters. With millions of people in the UK turning to apps for dating, our criteria for finding the one can be applied before we even go on a date. But sometimes, no matter how much a person may be your type on paper, when you meet them face to face, that connection, that spark is missing. So we decide they're not for us and we move on to the next swipe right. A big question I've always had is what is that spark? So many of us use it to determine if a person is a good fit, but what gives us the physical green light? I spoke to Eliška Prochaskova and I'm a researcher from Leiden University who thinks she may have cracked the connection code. When people are looking for a romantic partner, they often describe they want to have the chemistry. They want to feel connection with that partner. And uh, while this is something what everybody say, it's really hard to describe what it actually is and can we measure it. Eliska and her colleagues tested this by setting up a blind date experiment. 
Two people would enter compartments of a space separated by a sliding hatch. They would then do a three, two, one big reveal for a few seconds to let the participants rate each other on physical attraction alone. They then let the deities chat for a few minutes and just be in each other's company. And then at the end, we ask them again how attracted a partner is. And we also asked them whether they want to go for another date. So this really allowed us to see how does the attraction changed over the period of dating and whether they become more attracted. This was all while wearing devices which measured their heart rate, how sweaty they got and tracked their eye movements. But these devices definitely didn't get in the way. They, they completely forgot they're wearing them and we could see a person running and wanting to go to the toilet. We had to stop that person because we're like, we can literally see what you're doing. Although the participants in the study showed gestures we associate with being attracted to someone like eye contact and smiling, Aliska found a different measure was the best at predicting attraction. Uh, while we measured all different type of expressions, so we measured nonverbal, smiling, laughing and flirtatious behavior, we measured also eye contact. And what we realized was that the main predictor of this click or this chemistry which people have was the synchrony between the partner's heart rates and their skin conductance, which are unconscious responses which you cannot control. And more they synchronized, more attracted uh, the partners become to each other. Why do you think heart rates matching up might influence attraction? At the moment, the scientists know that synchrony between people's physiology, like heart rate, skin conductance, happens in many different contexts. It's a phenomenon which we, for example, observe between mother and child when they're, uh, for example, hugging or when they're playing. And from that, we know that this kind of synchronicity often leads to powerful bonding. With so many of us now dating online, this research can teach us how to increase the chance of having that spark on a first date. About 50 million people who are dating online using different type of apps. And lots of time, yeah, they base their choice on attractiveness. What we observe in our study, what is really important for two people to really establish this connection is a level of, I would say, emotional synchronicity, what the physiology actually measures. That means that it's important that people actually put their emotions out and therefore reveal their emotions in order for the other person to explore them, to see them, and also feel them in their own body. So there you have it. Being open and vulnerable on a fair state may be the key for allowing that spark to ignite. Or alternatively, ask your date to come equipped with a heart rate monitor and put your scores on the doors at the end of the night. Second date? Nah, mate, you were a solid 74 beats per minute when I was running on an 81. All the best for the future. That was Aliska Prochaskova speaking to Julia Ravy. You know, after we first reported on that research, I asked a date to wear a heart rate monitor before we met for the first time at a restaurant. And I still have no idea why she never showed up. And if you too are having romantic dramas, you may take some solace in the fact that at least in 200 years time, no one will care about your deleted text messages to your sweetheart. But sadly, that's not the case for French queen Marie Antoinette. Step back into the past to Paris in the late 1700s and Marie Antoinette was under house arrest during the French Revolution. Despite being married to Louis XVI, she corresponded prolifically with the Swedish Count Axel von Fersen, with whom she was alleged to be intimately involved. He kept many of her letters, but someone scribbled out key parts of the text, 
possibly the bits that might have got him or her into trouble. But in October, researchers used an X-ray technique to see through those redactions by subtracting the differing signals of the ink used for the scribbling out from the one Marie Antoinette wrote with. Anne Michelin from Sorbonne University took Harry Lewis through the story. This correspondence uh, was secret correspondence between uh, Marie-Antoinette and Axel Fleffersen in 1791 and 92. It's the end of the life of the Queen. She's in jail. So we are in the middle of the revolution and it's not really good for the royal family in France. She realized the situation. She, she sees that it's not a good time for her. And so she writes to Axel de Fersen, which is a very close friend, and she writes about the political situation, but also on their feelings. And uh, this correspondence is special because some parts of uh, this is uh, redacted. It's very black and you can't see anything. For me, <laughs> at least, it's impossible to read the text. And so it was something that the curator from the National Archives that asked us if we can read the text. And do you have any of those words available would you be able to read a short part where something's been reducted uh, in french yeah I, I guess it will have to be won't it non pas sans vous dire mon cher et bien tendre ami que je vous aime à la folie et que jamais jamais je ne peux être un moment sans vous adorer so it's something like my dear friend i love you madly and i can't be a moment without adoring you something like that not exactly but something like that so the big question there is how do you see underneath the reductions? How do you know what the letters are? It's all uh, iron gall ink. Iron gall ink are inks that contain sulfate, iron sulfate, uh, but also other metallic elements like copper, like zinc. And so there is some slight difference between the different inks. And we use uh, techniques X-ray reference uh, spectroscopy uh, that analyze the composition of the ink. So just uh, send the X-ray on the paper and we record the spectrum in each pixel. So in each pixel of the letters, we record a spectrum. And then when you transfer that X-ray to the screen and you put that into a digital format, through looking at each pixel, you can see where the spectrum changes and the different elements are present. So you can build up a visual picture like that. Yeah, yeah, like that. And we have some parts where we have only uh, the writing ink, the original ink, and some parts where we are sure there is only the reduction ink. So it's like that we can see if we have the same composition or if we have something really different. So if you're going to try to censor your love letters, make sure you cross it out in the same ink it was originally written in, or else it too may be broadcast around the world in 200 years' time. Anne Michelin there. We're taking a look back at our favourite news stories from 2021, the stories that make you feel good and have hope for the future of humanity. And our next story tackles head-on one of the biggest problems we all face, train delays. 
Nothing can ruin your morning quite like a train delay. And back in autumn, we all faced a perennial problem. Leaves on the line. It seems bizarre that something as mundane and fragile as leaves can bring public transport to a halt in the 21st century. But it is a serious problem. Tannins in leaves react with iron in the rails to produce a super slippery surface that the train wheels just slide over. But good news! Mechanical engineers at the University of Sheffield may soon be riding to our rescue with a way to make this commuting catastrophe a thing of the past, as I found out. We are sorry to announce that the 1822 train to Cambridge has been delayed due to leaves on the line. We are sorry for any inconvenience caused. Ugh, the announcement we all dread to hear. But leaves? Why are high-tech trains in the 21st century thwarted by leaves? Roger Lewis explains. Every autumn as the leaves are falling from the trees, these are crushed by the passage of trains um, and you get some chemical reactions taking place in the interface that create this, this black material that adheres to the railway track very well, you'd find it very hard to to scratch it off, even if you were poking the track with a screwdriver or a a metal blade, which means that trains struggle to brake safely, but also to accelerate away from stations, which causes delays and makes passengers unhappy. So the leaves are chemically bonded to the track. It's not just like when I'm walking on the pavement and the leaves are all wet and mushy, it's a bit slippy. It's more than that. It it is more than that. And how do we currently deal with them? Um, So at the moment, Network Rail use what are called railhead treatment trains, which fires water at the railhead under very, very high pressure. The pressure is so high, if if the train stopped and the water kept going, it, it could possibly cut through the rail. Cut through solid steel? Yeah, yeah. That is incredibly high. And must use a lot of water as well. Um, it does. This is this is one of the problems with, with the trains. They can only run a, a certain distance before they need refilling. So your solution involves using dry ice. What is dry ice other than the thing you put in fancy cocktails to make them go all smoky? The pellets we use are basically solid carbon dioxide. Now that sounds very bad. We don't like carbon dioxide at the moment, but actually... All the carbon dioxide we used is is recaptured from other industries that are putting it out into the atmosphere. So most of it comes from the fertilizer industry. Basically, you have to compress it under very high force, and then it, it turns into a, a solid. Then you have to keep it very cold to, to keep it solid. So when it comes out of our machine and hits the railhead, it's at about minus 70 degrees centigrade. How are you using dry ice to remove this slippy layer from the track? We fire it onto the top of the railway track in a stream of, of air, um, which is actually going at supersonic speed. So you've got these pellets going at very high speed. Because they're cold, they make the leaf layer brittle. And then because they're back in the atmosphere, they turn back into a gas. So you've got lots of little air explosions almost across the top of the railway track. So you've got three mechanisms there which are acting to break up and remove the leaf layer. I'm imagining like a machine gun firing continuously little ice pellets. Does it look anything like that? That's kind of how it works, but that's not how it is. It doesn't look as exciting as that, I'm afraid. You've got these 
dry ice machine guns strapped to passenger trains can they just run as normal will this happen during the normal commute from london to cambridge or does the train have to be going particularly slowly for it to work that's a good question at at the moment railhead treatment trains for example are designed to run at, at 60 miles an hour a lot of passenger trains on local lines will typically run at that speed or a bit less so we've been obviously been targeting high-speed operation. We were testing it on a full-scale wheel rail test at 60 miles an hour. We've run on track on a train at 40 miles an hour, and hopefully this autumn we'll be able to go a little bit faster. The good thing about cleaning on a passenger train is that hopefully we'll be able to stop the really heavy contamination building up. So if we can clean more frequently, we can do a lighter clean, which is obviously much easier at at higher speed. It's a bit like Brushing your teeth often so you don't have to go to the dentist and get the horrible treatments done. <laughs> yes, quite. <laughs> and how long do you think it's going to be until we no longer have the dreaded announcement of this train has been delayed due to leaves on the line? <laughs> I'd like to say very soon. I think our systems will be underneath trains probably within a couple of years. But we can use it already on a railhead treatment train or a road-to-rail vehicle, so we're already cleaning the track with it. And it can't come soon enough. Now, when is that next train arriving? That was Roger Lewis from the University of Sheffield. And sadly, it'll soon be time for us to leaf. But before we go, we just have time for my absolute favourite story of the year and it's about wombats. Wombats aren't famous for many things but one of the few things they are famous for are their poos because their poos are cube shaped. But how can they make a square poo from a round tube I hear you ask and it's obviously the question we've all been asking because finally scientists have turned their attention to this serious problem and in February we finally had our answer. Eva Hickenbotham spoke to scientist and two-time Ig Nobel Prize winner David Hu. Wombats are marsupials the size of a, an obese toddler, the face of a teddy bear and the nose of a koala, and they don't like each other. They like to live in sort of separate territories. What people most know them for is the way they defend their territories, and they do it with little flags, feces. They make latrines. You know, as tall as a wombat can climb with its short, stubby legs, which is not very tall, usually a stump or a rock. And they'll get on top of this rock and um, defecate. They defecate about 100 cubes a day, and they'll leave about 10 or so as a calling card. I cannot believe that. A hundred, a hundred times a day, and they're building essentially a tower of poo outside their house. Yeah, they're separate latrines, and they'll dump 100 cubes sort of dispersed among the various latrines. For years, people had known that these wombat feces are different from all the other mammals, that they're cubic, but no one knew exactly how an animal can make anything that's this strangely shaped. They're kind of the uh, the size and color of a Godiva chocolate or an Almond Joy mini bar with one nut, but they smell like grassy poop and probably not very tasty. <laughs> Thank you. So what did you do? Our first task was finding a good collaborator. So we sought out Scott Carver, who's um, a wombat expert and works with wombats. And 
He shipped us intestines, full intact intestines and wombats feces through the mail. It was around Christmas time, so it was a, it was one of the best Christmas presents I've ever gotten, uh, wombat <laughs> intestines. We opened them up, and they had tiny little presents inside. I'm very happy to see them. <laughs> one of the first discoveries we made was that the cubes happen inside the wombat. They start out as a yogurt-like slurry, and they eventually solidify, dry. In the last uh, meter of the intestines or so, they were just sort of a factory line of cubes. And so it was amazing to see inside the body going from a sort of a amorphous, a sort of strangely shaped solid to something that had edges and flat faces. The other thing that we noticed is that the cubes were arranged very nicely. When we hung the intestines from the ceiling, we noticed that after they finished swinging, all the corners and edges of the intestines aligned. And that meant that the cubes, they had a clock in the intestines that was telling them where to make the corners and where to make the flat faces. So we knew there was something in the intestines themselves that was communicating where to put the different parts of the cube. We performed these materials tests and measured how much it stretches. And we found that there are certain stripes on the intestines that stretched less than the others. So some parts of the intestines are four times as stretchy as the stiff parts. The rest we had to turn to mathematical modeling to basically simulate oscillation of the intestines, try to simulate the properties of feces, and see how the two would interact until we got corners and flat faces. So you went into the model knowing that, okay, so the intestines has a more stretchy bit and a less stretchy bit. You input that into a computer algorithm, and then what happens? We wrote the equations for how the intestines should move if they're contracted like a muscle. And over many, many contractions, we saw that the stiff sections would produce corners at their midpoint. How long is wombat feces inside the wombat? So when we eat something, it's basically out of our bodies in one to two days. And a wombat is uh, three to five days. And in part, that's because they're very drought tolerant. They want to capture as much water as possible from the feces before it leaves. And it's also that time that allows the intestines to do their sculpting work. The feces, as it gets drier, it gets very, very solid-like. The longer time it takes allows the corners to get formed a little bit more, like a square. What a fabulous story. It is seriously my favourite story of the entire 2021. And we must leave it there. So thank you very much for joining us over the last year, and let's hope there's plenty more good news to come in 2022. Next week, we'll be back to looking at the science behind the latest headlines. The Naked Scientists comes to you from the Institute of Continuing Education at the University of Cambridge and is supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Sally LePage. Thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.